Well, open your Bible with me. Deuteronomy chapter number 5, please, this morning. Deuteronomy, the book of Deuteronomy written by Moses, the last of the books of the Pentateuch. Deuteronomy chapter number 5. And as soon as you get it, stand to your feet with me as we read God's Word together. Now, if you've already got it real quick, you might be also turning to Matthew 22. I'm going to use two passages this morning, Deuteronomy 5 and Matthew 22. So let's look first in Deuteronomy chapter 5. Moses called all Israel and said unto them, Hear, O Israel, the statutes and judgments which I speak in your ears this day, that you may learn them and keep and do them. The Lord our God made a covenant with us in Horeb. And for the sake of time, go to verse 6. Here's what the Lord said in His covenant. I am the Lord thy God, which brought thee out of the land of Egypt from the house of bondage. And then He gives the Ten Commandments. The Ten Commandments were first given in Exodus 20, but now they are repeated here in Deuteronomy almost exactly as they're written originally in Exodus. And the first commandment is, Thou shalt have none other gods before me. The second commandment, Thou shalt not make thee any graven images or any likeness of anything that is in heaven above or that is in the earth beneath or that is in the waters beneath the sea. Thou shalt not bow down thyself unto them or serve them. For I, the Lord thy God, am a jealous God, visiting the iniquity of the fathers upon the children unto the third and fourth generation of them that hate me. Now, keep your hand there, but go over with me, to, or turn the page, please. You won't need to keep your hand there. So turn the page to Deuteronomy chapter 6, the next chapter. Deuteronomy 6, and we begin reading in verse 4. This is the famous Shema passage. This, if you're an Orthodox Jew, you repeat this every single day of your life. And here it is. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God is one Lord. And thou shalt love the Lord thy God with all thy heart, with all thy soul, and with all thy might. Now, in Matthew chapter 22... Matthew chapter 22, and beginning in verse number 36, the young man came to the Lord Jesus and asked him a question, tempting him. You remember the story. Matthew 22 and 36. Master, he said to Jesus, which is the great commandment in the law? And Jesus said to him, and Jesus quoted Deuteronomy chapter 6 and verse 5. Thou shalt love the Lord thy God with all thy heart and with all thy soul and with all thy mind. This is the first and the great commandment. So Jesus Christ himself said the greatest commandment is the first commandment. Thou shalt have no other gods before me. And the extension of that in chapter 6 and verse 5 of Deuteronomy you're to love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind and your might. Thank you, and you may be seated.
My subject to you today is made to worship. We are made to worship God. And I've always read this quotation by the Lord in Matthew chapter 22, there in verse number 38. Why did Jesus say that the first commandment, the commandment to love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, and mind, and not to have any other gods before him, why did Jesus say that that was the first and the greatest of the commandments? On what basis did he say this is the greatest of the commandments of God? Well, let me give you some reasons, and let me give you some background first. God made us as human beings in his image. And point one today, man will worship. Man will worship some God. Every man is a worshiper. Even the atheist is a worshiper. He may deny that, but the atheist worships. You say, what does he worship? He worships himself. He thinks there is no higher authority. He worships his own brain. He thinks he knows enough that that is his final authority in life. Even an atheist has a God, whether he wants to acknowledge it or not. And so every one of us was born with what we call a God consciousness. In our spirit, we're body, soul, and spirit. I preached to you a few weeks ago body, soul, and spirit. And through my soul and my spirit, I have a consciousness that there is a higher power. We call it the God consciousness. And so we're made to worship. You were made to worship. And by the way, you worship something regardless of who you may be. We're worshiping beings. Pascal said it like this, there's a God-shaped vacuum in the heart of every man. There is a vacuum inside, and only God can fill that vacuum. Augustine, one of the great theologians of the past, said, Lord, Thou hast made us for Thyself, and we are restless until we find our rest in Thee. In other words, there's something in us that reaches out to God. Listen again. Thou hast made us for Thyself. And, Lord, we are restless until we find our rest in Thee. The word worship has been a word that I've studied a lot in the last few years because there's so much conflict over worship, what is worship, how to worship, and so on. And, in fact, there's a very well-known book called The Worship Wars because about 25 or 30 years ago, worship styles, if you want to call it that, changed in America. And so some churches adopted one style. Some churches stayed with the style they had, uh, had always had. And so there was worship wars, great controversy about what is the appropriate way to worship God. So I began a study, and I've kept notes and just little scribblings here and there on worship. I've come to this conclusion. I look up the word worship in both the Greek and the Hebrew And in every case, the word means the same thing. It means to bow down. That's all it means. It has nothing to do with music. It has nothing to do with a choir or a praise team. It has nothing to do with the way people dress. It has nothing to do with the style of the architecture of the church. 
Worship means to bow or to kneel down. In fact, to read you the definition here, it means to bow or to kneel before a deity, a god, or royalty, kings in the olden days. And we bow to demonstrate submission to God's authority, to show reverence, to express love and affection and loyalty to our Lord. In the book of Psalms, number 95 and verse 6, you might want to jot, jot, uh, you may want to jot this down, but uh, don't look it up right now. Psalm 95, there is an invitation for people to come and worship. And it sa- says this, come, let us worship and bow down. And so almost every time you see this term worship in the Bible, there's also this idea of bowing and kneeling in reverence before Almighty God. And I look in my Bible. Don't you turn there. I'll just read it. It's 2 Chronicles chapter 7. They're dedicating Solomon's temple. The whole nation has gathered before the temple here this day. It's one of the greatest celebrations in all of Israel's history. And in chapter 7 and verse 3, I read, And when all the children of Israel saw the fire of God come down upon the temple and the glory of the Lord upon the house, they bowed themselves with their faces to the ground upon the pavement and worshiped. You see, bowing down, worship, same context every time. They bowed themselves to the ground upon the pavement, and they worshiped, and they praised the Lord, saying, for He is good, for His mercy endureth forever. You see this concept all the way through the Bible. You even see it in the temptation of the Lord Jesus Christ. And Satan tempts the Lord. And on the third of those temptations, Satan says to him in Matthew chapter 4 and verse 9, if you will fall down and worship me, ah, there it is again, bowing, falling down, kneeling, associated with worship. If you will fall down and worship me, I'll give you the kingdoms of the earth. Satan understood precisely what that involved because it was submission. It was recognition of his authority over Jesus Christ. If he could only get Jesus to acknowledge his authority and, and, and reverence him, oh, that would, be, that would be what he could only hope for. And, of course, the Lord Jesus Christ rejected his invitation. The elements of worship, there are many different elements that we use in worship of God. Probably first and most important of all would be the idea of prayer, requesting the blessings and the favor of God, that we pray to the deity that we worship, whether you're a pagan worshiping a mountain or whether you're a Christian worshiping Almighty God. We come before the deity we worship, and we invoke His blessings and His favor upon our lives. Worship involves praise, singing, music, both vocal music and an orchestra. Throughout the Psalms, you have maybe as many mentions of playing to the Lord upon the instruments and praising Him as you do of people singing uh, verbally their praise to Him. In worship, one of the elements is the Scripture itself, where we read it, we preach it, we teach it, 
And then we observe the ordinances, baptism and the Lord's Supper. Those are acts of worship before the Lord. And then, of course, there's giving. There's the idea of giving. And throughout the ages and throughout the Bible, every time people come before the Lord almost, it mentions them bowing down, but then it involves them giving, tithes, offerings. It might be other commodities that they had depending upon the culture. And in every case, the worshiper looks to God the God that he worships, whatever it is, he looks to God for life. We depend upon God for our lives. He looks to God for children. And so the ancient religions had a lot of fertility cults because the people wanted to have lots of children. And so they prayed to God to give them children. And then obviously other necessities, food, water, rain for their crops, the sun to shine. They, they prayed for their health. They prayed for protection from their enemies, from diseases. They looked to God to give them joy and happiness and meaning in their life. This is all involved in this concept of what we today just simply say, worship. We're looking to God for the things that we need to have a flourishing life, if you will. Now, here's a principle that I've discovered as I've studied this. Listen to this. This is a very powerful principle. As we worship, our affections move toward the object of our worship. Whatever it is that I worship, I begin to have affection for it. I'm dependent on it, whether it's the God of the pagan and his prayer, or whether it's the God of the Christian, the God of the Jew, the God of the Gentile, the God of the Muslim, whoever it is, if they're worshiping a deity, their affections begin to move toward that deity. They begin to love that deity. There's a loyalty. There's a bond that forms. Another thing I think about worship is so fascinating. The uh, archaeologists who study the ancient cultures and so on, and uh, the anthropologists who study people groups today, they've never discovered, listen to this, they have never discovered a people group or a tribe of people that didn't worship anything. Every single being, human being upon the earth Every group of people, we found some atheists, some outliers, but every people group worships something. It might be a stick or a stone. It might be a mountain. It might be the sea. It might be the sun. It might be whatever it is, lightning with the Norse. But it, in every case, they worship something. There's never been a people that were totally irreligious that didn't worship anything. Now, Number two in our thinking, so my first point is man will worship. Man is a worshiping being. Every human being is going to worship something. Number two now, in the beginning, all men worshiped the Lord. In the beginning, all men worshiped the Lord. Obviously, they were fresh after the creation. It was not hard for them to believe in Jehovah God, Yahweh of the Old Testament, the biblical God. Go with me to the book of Romans now, please. Romans chapter 1. And I want to show you, in the beginning, everybody worshiped the same God. There was one religion. Romans chapter 1 
And I begin in verse number 20, a very familiar passage to you. Romans 1 and 20. For the invisible things of Him, God, from the creation of the world, as early on, are clearly seen, being understood by the things that are made, even His eternal power and God His, so that they are without excuse. Now, reason your way through that verse with me. From the creation of the world, God, who is invisible to us, our God is invisible. He, there's, no, there's no image of Him. He has no body that we would look to other than in the Lord Jesus Christ. But our God, the invisible God it calls Him, all the way back from the creation of the world has been understood. And how do we understand a God we can't see or touch? We understand Him by the things that He made by the creation around us. And so we look to Him as we worship Him. We begin to understand what He is like. We don't know what He looks like physically, of course, but we know what He is like by the creation, by the things that He has created. If you just have one thoughtful look in your entire life, at the creation, if you'll just stop and look at what we call nature, if you just stop for a, a, a few moments and you look at the mountains, the sea, the trees, the vegetation, other people, the animals, you look at the natural world around you and you know that somebody designed this. I, I tell you, you're a fool if you think this just happened just pop one day and it, and, it, and it began to evolve. It makes no sense to, it, 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 it just not a reasonable proposition. One thoughtful look and you know somebody designed it. You know it didn't just happen by chance. You know that whoever it was that designed it too, by the way, had infinite intelligence. How did he think of all this? How did he think of where to put the organs in the body? the fangs in the rattlesnake, the leaves on the tree. How in the world could you design the trillion things, details that involve a universe? He had to have infinite intelligence. He also had to have infinite power. He had to have the power that once he had thought about it to bring it into being, to create it. And so you look at the creation and you begin to understand this being that brought all this together is infinitely wise and knowledgeable and infinitely powerful. That's why at the end of verse number 20, you see that little phrase there, so that they are without excuse. The atheist, the skeptic, the unbeliever, he has no basis for his unbelief. It's very obvious it required someone of infinite power and intelligence. And that's the way it started. Everybody worshiped God in those days. And then in time, man began to substitute other things for the worship of God. Where did the worship of other gods and idols actually begin? It begins in Genesis chapter 10 and 11 in a city called Babylon. And you find Babylon next to Jerusalem, the most frequently mentioned name of a city in your entire Bible. And idolatry began there. Men began to worship, the Bible says in Genesis 11, the host of heaven. What are the hosts of heaven? They began to worship the zodiac. They worshiped the, the sun and the moon 
and the stars and the planets, and they began to give them names, and then they began to attribute power to them that we're controlled by Venus, we're controlled by Mars and Jupiter, and, the, and, and these have an effect upon us, and they gave them names, and they began to worship these, <clears throat> these members of the Zodiac. It began in Genesis 10, but we go to Exodus chapter 1, and we find out God calls this man Moses and sends him down to Egypt. And by this time, idolatry has taken over the pagan world. The only people worshiping God at this point seem to be the Hebrew people. And so God sends 10 plagues down upon the nation. You, you know the story. And listen to me. Understand that those 10 plagues had a very, very specific purpose. Each of those plagues was directed toward a god of the Egyptians. Egyptians had a multiplicity of gods. They worshiped primarily animals were the representations of their gods. And they worshiped hundreds of different gods. But the ten most powerful gods, God sent a plague against them, and he destroyed. He showed his power being superior to each of these Egyptian gods. Now, idolatry was so bad at this time. We today don't need our Bible. We go to Egyptian cave art, they call it, some caves that have been discovered deep in Egypt. And you go back into those caves now, and there are graphical depictions on the walls of their gods, art, cave art, they call it. And you look at those, and you begin to see depictions of the vilest, most lewd, debauched practices so bad you don't even want to, I don't even want to mention them. The first time we read or know about bestiality and its practices, we see it in the art, the pictures of the sex acts of these lewd, lewd worshipers, if you will. They actually worship that. And you say, well, God was sure hard on these Egyptians. I mean, on that last night, the firstborn son do you know why the firstborn son was killed? He was killed because to the Egyptians, the Pharaoh was God. And God showed himself to be more powerful than the gods they worshiped, the son of the Pharaoh, the firstborn of the Pharaoh. In every one of those, God is making a statement. I am the Lord. I'm the only God. You worship me. You have no other gods before me. Now, back to your Bible, Romans chapter 1, verse 21. So, initially, in the beginning, all men worshiped the Lord. Then idolatry moved in, the worship of other things. Now, we go to Romans chapter 1 and 21. And so, because when they knew God, that was at the beginning for the first maybe thousand or two years here, when they knew God, they glorified Him not as God. They didn't give Him the reverence, the honor that He deserved. And neither were they thankful. They forgot from whence their blessings came. And they became vain in their imaginations. Circle the word imaginations in your Bible. It has to do with reasoning. They became vain in their reasoning processes. Their reasoning became distorted, if you will. And then if you will notice, it says here, their foolish heart 
was darkened, and the heart is part of, part of the heart is the mind. Their minds were darkened. Their reasons were perverted and distorted. They professed themselves to be wise, but God's evaluation of them is they're fools. And in verse 23, they changed the glory of the uncorruptible God. Notice that phrase. Our God is uncorruptible. He's holy. He's pure. They changed Him because they didn't like worshiping a God that made some of the demands He made. And they changed Him into an image. And they began to make things with their hand, images. And they were shaped like corruptible men and birds and four-footed beasts and creeping things. If you look at those Egyptian cave art drawings, you have a lot of human uh, human beings in bodies with an animal head on it. You've seen some of those, no doubt. And it's because they were mixing the wor- they, they had departed from the worship of the true God. And now they are using these animal figures as the images that they worshiped here. And they've done it in other places since. Now, so idolatry began in the mind. The worship of idols It always starts, whether it's in America today or it was in ancient Egypt, it starts with distorted ideas, unworthy ideas of God. It it begins with reductionism. Man reduces God down to his level to where he can understand him. People say, I don't understand God. No, you're not supposed to. If you could understand him, you, you you would have as much knowledge as him. He's superior. He's infinite, and we are finite. You're not supposed to understand all about God. You wouldn't worship him if he were an equal. So they changed the glory of God, his attributes, into an image. It began in their mind. They envisioned a picture, a mental image of a God, and they made an image of him representing, listen, they made him like they wanted him to be. Not like he is. They contrived an image of the way we want God to be. Fast forward to modern-day America. Does that ring any bells? You think anybody today worships the God of their own mind, the God of their own devices, that they fix the God in their mind of how I want him to be? Oh, ho, ho. Go with me through a week. And you'll find that's a pretty common thing, I'll tell you. The result of all this, in verse number 24, God gave them up. Verse number 26, God gave them up. In verse number 28, God gave them up or over. Three different times it says that God said, okay, I've had it. I've had it. And because of the vile nature, the lewdness, the immorality of idolatry, because idolatry always leads to immorality. Verse 25, they changed God's truth to a lie. In verse 24, they gave themselves up to lust, to dishonor their bodies between themselves. In verse 25, they worship the creation, creature, more than they do the creator. Nature worship, who is blessed forever. Boy, I could get off on that and just go for all day long. 
the, the modern environmentalist movement worships the creature, the creation, more than it does the creator. And you just go down through this. God, verse 26, God gave them up to vile affections. And if you read verse 26, lesbianism, the women did change their natural use into that which is against nature. It was God who says it's unnatural, not me. In verse number 27, likewise the men, the natural use of the woman burned in their lust toward one another, so we have homosexuality. God gave them up. Verse 28, he turned them over to what he calls a reprobate mind to do the things which are not convenient or to do things which are loathsome or not proper, not decent. And the reprobate mind has the idea of, of a complete reprobation, a complete the thinking process is now so corrupted that it's irreversible. This is where idolatry always ends. Now, I preached all of that to come to this point. Number one, man is a worshiping being. Every human being worships something. Number two, in the beginning, all men worshiped God, but they got involved in, in worship of idols the things they created with their own minds that didn't accurately represent God, and God gave a command. You have no other gods. You're not to bow down to a graven image. You're not to worship anything else ever, period. Now we come to where I make the point I want to make. Men become like the God we worship. Men become like the God that we worship. And so I want you to turn with me and read this passage, it's in Psalm number, number 135. Psalm number 135. This is a principle. I wrote it in my Bible as a little boy. I have a Bible that I had as a teenage, teenager and as a child. And my daddy, I got some notes in it. My daddy actually made that statement. I heard him as a teenage boy and wrote it in my Bible. How true it is. We Men become like the God they worship. Now, let me show you the scriptural basis for that. Psalm 135, 15. The idols of the heathen are silver and gold, the work of men's hands. They have mouths, but they speak not. They have eyes, but they see not. They have ears, but these idols hear not. Neither is there any breath or life in their mouths. And here's the phrase, they that make them are like them. They that make them are like them. We become like the gods we worship. Show me what is your God, and I will tell you. You show me who you worship, who you genuinely worship in your heart, not who you say you worship in America. Show me who you say you worship or who you truly worship, and I'll tell you what you're like. Because the principle is this. As we worship a deity, we become assimilated into the character of that God that we worship. The character of the God that we worship becomes our ideal. It becomes, this is what I ought to be like. This is what humans, we ought to be like. If it were not so, you wouldn't have that as your God. And so you've elevated 
this idea of God and made it the ideal for your life. And as you worship that, you become assimilated into that. We conform to that ideal. Let me say it like this. If I worship a God who is holy, I become assimilated into his character, and I become more holy myself. If I worship a God who is righteous, I become more aware of, my, of the need for righteousness in my life. If my God is a God of love and kindness, I see that I need to be loving and kind. But the pagans worshiped gods who got drunk, who constantly were fighting among themselves. They worshiped gods who lost their tempers, who killed another god. And so, likewise, the people who worship them, that's the way they begin to live. Now listen, let me apply that. So the God, hear this, hear this, hear this. The God that a nation worships determines its morality. The God, whoever America or Israel is worshiping, that's going to determine the character of the people who worship them. The Canaanites worship Baal, the image of a calf or a bull. And it's mentioned all through the Bible, Baal worship, Baal worship. And it was a vile worship. You know the worst part of it is in the valley of Hinnon, the Hebrew people started bringing, when they worshiped Baal, they would bring their little baby. Can you imagine like a baby like we dedicated today? And they would bring that baby and lay it in the arms of a figure, and then they would light a fire, and they would sacrifice that little baby. How do you get that far? How do you get that blind? You worship the wrong God. You worship the wrong God. It's very simple. In the Greek and Roman world, you had the goddess of love, Diana, Aphrodite, Venus, Artemis. He went to Corinth or Ephesus. There was a big temple to the god, the fertility goddess. And there were priestesses there. Really, there were prostitutes. They served in the temple. It was, it was a way to worship, a way to connect with the gods. And so men would pay their money and go in and have, they had alcoves all in the temple. And they would go in and they would have, a, have sex with the priestess. And it, it, it wasn't for pleasure. It was a way to communicate with the spirits of the gods. That's how far immorality will take you. The priestesses, by the way, were the, some of the most highly respected citizens in Corinth. The Norse worshipped Thor and Odin, where cruelty was a virtue. It was a disgrace to die in bed, so most of them, would, the warriors, would kill themselves when they got old and sick because cruelty and bloodshed was a part of the worship of Thor, the god of lightning. Now today, you see, let me bring this to a close, but we're too sophisticated to bow down to those images. But do you know what we do? We submit ourselves to ideas and to material objects, to systems like communism, evolutionism, 
humanism. We submit ourselves to systems that we believe are going to provide for us, enhance our life, to protect us, to give life meaning, to bring joy to us. And so in America, we've left Christianity. We've gone into what we call secularism, humanism. Man is the peak being. Instead of worshiping God, we worship man. Man looks to himself. We depend upon ourselves to preserve life. We depend upon ourselves for everything. We worship materialism, what Jesus called mammon. We believe that if we make enough money, it will give us security. We know it will give us freedom. We can do, we can do things that other people can't do. It'll, 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 give us, it'll give us pleasure. We can afford to do things that are pleasurable. And it can become our God. Jesus said, in fact, you cannot worship God and money. He said it clearly. Why did he say that? Because it'll fail you. You may think it'll give you security, and they'll find you, well, you'll, you'll end up dead one day anyhow. It will not bring you the joy you think, or wealthy people would uh, be the happiest people. The man who worships money, he becomes like the God he worships. He becomes ma- miserly and greedy and self-focused. The person who worships pleasure, I look at people and their God is pleasure, 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 having a good time, sports, recreation, entertainment, movies. And I look at them and they get old and they're empty and they're shallow and they're jaded. Nothing impresses them. And then I stand over an old saint who's worshiped God all these years, and people become like the gods they worship. And I look down into the face of Jerry Aiken, or I look down into the face of Grady Queen, and they've been worshiping God for 20 and 30 and 40 and 50 and 60 years. And you know what? There's a peace, and there's a joy. And Mo Mowry laying on his deathbed said to me, I didn't, I thought it would be harder than this. I have the perfect peace of Christ in my life. You can't buy that with money. You can't have enough pleasure to die with peace. You become like the God you worship. Now, look up here at me. Don't miss this. Everything I've said, now I'm going to say it in two sentences the implications of it. Do you understand why Jesus said that this is the first and greatest commandment? Explains it, doesn't it? Why did he say, love the Lord with all your heart, soul, and mind? The reason he said that, as long as you do that, you will walk in his way and your life will be, your life will flourish. Second thing I want to say, now you understand why America and the world is like it is, because we abandon God. And so we have violence, and we have immorality, we have a lust for power, 
We have division and hatred. Why? We worship power. We worship money. We worship pleasure. We don't worship peace. We don't worship God anymore. And people become like the God they worship. Noah Webster called the greatest mind in the American or early days of America, and I quote him, the moral principles and precepts contained in the Scriptures ought to form the basis of all our civil constitutions and laws. All the miseries and evils which men suffer from vice, from crime, ambition, injustice, oppression, slavery, and war proceed from their despising or neglecting the principles contained in the Bible. End of quote. Idols have power over people. That's why missionaries go and very difficult. There's only one thing can extradite a person. It's enwrapped in idol worship, whether it be in their mind or an image, whether it be Buddhism, Hinduism, or materialism in America. There's only one thing can free you from the tentacles of an idol, and that's the gospel of Jesus Christ. It has the power to free people from their idols. It tells me of a God who created a universe infinite in wisdom and knowledge and power. And this God loves me so much that He gave His only Son to die for my sins. He loves me so much that God, infinite God, sacrificed Himself for me, a little tiny thing like me, and that His Son died in my place, took the penalty for my sins, took all the evil deeds of humanity upon Himself. Well, no other God did that. And if you buy into that and believe that, He'll free you from the tentacles of whatever idol you may be entrapped in. Do Christians worship idols? Oh, John Calvin said, the human heart is an idol factory. Anything I put in front of God is an idol by definition. And so I ask you to bow your head. 